Chapter Twenty Three of the Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter Twenty Three: The Adulteration of Food. The chemist's imitation of nature, as shown in the previous chapter, has led to results of marvelous interest and practical value. But in some cases, unfortunately, the imitation practice at the present time has an unworthy object. Just as there are some individuals who devote their chemical knowledge to the manufacture of bombs and infernal machines, so there are others who engage in the objectionable practice of adulterating food. There have always been knaves ready to defraud the public, and the adulteration of food is no new thing. We have evidence on record that in past centuries bread, wine, butter, and drugs were all liable to adulteration. Things are bad enough now, but if one were to judge from a certain booklet published in the beginning of the last century, the old days were even worse. This striking pamphlet has for part of its title Deadly Adulteration and Slow Poisoning, and Death in the Pot and the Bottle, in which the blood in poisoning and life-destroying adulterations of wines, spirits, beers, bread, flour, tea, sugar, spices, cheesemongery, pastry, confectionery, medicines, etc., are laid open to the public and the author expresses himself occasionally in the gloomiest terms regarding the state of matters in his day. Bread, he says, turns out to be a crutch to help us onward to the grave instead of being the staff of life. In porter there is no support, in cordials no consolation, in almost everything poison, and in scarcely any medicine cure. The adulterations practiced at that time, however, were comparatively crude, and with present-day methods and instruments they would be easily detected. As a result of the advance of chemical knowledge and practice, the adulterator has been forced to refine his nefarious methods, so that at the present time many of the alien substances introduced into our food can be detected only by the skilled analyst. For ways that are dark and tricks that are vain, the modern adulterator would indeed be hard to beat. We must, of course, allow that if we call every foreign addition to our food an adulteration, there are cases where the offense is not very heinous. As examples of these less objectionable additions, we may take the coloring and flavoring of butter. Butter fat itself, in the natural state, has generally nothing like the yellow color which we are accustomed to see in the commercial article, and the explanation is that in the great majority of cases an artificial coloring matter, quite harmless in itself, has been introduced. This is done, it is said, because the public prefers to have a highly colored article. Again, the difference in flavor of various samples of butter is not natural. It is induced by the presence of certain microorganisms which are cultivated for the purpose. These adulterations, although undesirable, are not harmful, and may be regarded as mildly fraudulent in comparison with others which are commonly practiced. Many common foods contain foreign materials introduced with the direct object of defrauding the public and securing a larger profit to the seller. Even ordinary foodstuffs of the breakfast table are not always what they seem, with the exception, perhaps, of sugar, on the purity of which one can depend. The reader may be interested to hear a little about the ways in which these foods are adulterated, and about the methods by which the fraud can be detected. In the case of milk, the chief, and one might almost say the natural, adulterant is water. New milk contains as much as 87% of water, and the uninitiated might suppose that it would be very easy to add a little more without detection. Careful analysis, however, will always reveal any such manipulation, although it must be borne in mind that there may be a certain difference in the richness of milk from various cows. One method which the chemist has at his disposal is the determination of the specific gravity. That is, he finds out how much heavier the milk is 
than an equal bulk of water. It is worthwhile remembering that the first recorded determination of the specific gravity of a substance was in connection with a question of fraud. Hiero, the king of Syracuse, had commissioned a goldsmith to make him a crown out of a certain quantity of gold. When the smith brought the finished crown, Hiero somehow suspected that there was an admixture of base metal, and asked Archimedes to find out for him whether this was so. The philosopher took a lump of pure gold equal in weight to the crown, and put each into a vessel full of water. He found that more water overflowed from the vessel into which the crown had been put than from the other, and concluded rightly that the crown must contain some lighter and baser metal. So the determination of specific gravity as a means of detecting fraud is a time-honored practice. If a bulk of water were taken which weighed exactly 100 ounces, an equal bulk of pure new milk would weigh about 103 ounces, a little less or a little more, according to its source. That is, the average specific gravity of milk may be taken as 1.03. If, then, a certain sample of milk had a specific gravity of only 1.02, we might be sure that it had been watered. On the other hand, the fact that the specific gravity of a sample is 1.03 does not prove the milk to be satisfactory, for, curiously enough, it is possible, by a judicious combination of watering and skimming, to get a product which has the same specific gravity as the original milk. The reader, of course, knows that the fat contained in the milk, in other words the cream, rises slowly to the surface, but he may not have drawn the conclusion that this fat must therefore be lighter than the milk. What is left after removing the cream, that is the skimmed milk, is actually heavier, bulk for bulk, than the fresh milk. Its specific gravity is higher than 1.03. By adding water to this skimmed milk in the proper proportion, the specific gravity is brought down to the normal figure, 1.03, and this milk is indistinguishable from fresh milk unless further tests are applied. It will probably be suggested that a mere glance at this milk would show that it had been skimmed and watered but our adulterator is not so easily caught. He perpetrates fraud upon fraud, exhibiting an ingenuity which is worthy of a better cause. A judicious admixture of a yellow dye to skimmed and watered milk is found to produce a rich, creamy appearance, and the public is delighted with its milk supply. So is the adulterator. He has sold his milk at the standard price, and he has still the cream to dispose of. Since then, the appearance of the milk, and even the determination of its specific gravity, may fail to give away any proof of adulteration, further examination is necessary. The analyst must proceed to find also what is the amount of fat present in the milk. This is very quickly ascertained by treating a measured quantity in a centrifugal machine. The fat or cream under these circumstances separates almost immediately, and its bulk may be determined. If the amount of fat is less than 3%, the milk has certainly been tampered with since the normal product never contains a smaller percentage of fat than this. A thorough examination would include also the determination of the non-fatty solids, consisting chiefly of casein and milk sugar. But a description of this would take us rather far. Butter is another household article that is readily and frequently adulterated, although the recent Butter and Margarine Act should do something to protect the public. The usual frauds practiced in the case of butter are 1 the sale of renovated or processed butter as fresh butter, and two, the substitution of a certain amount of cheap beef fat or lard for the true butter fat. Renovated butter is obtained from rancid butter by a process in which the objectionable matter is removed. The product is rendered sweet for the time being and is sold as choice butter. Artificial butter, on the other hand, or margarine, as it is commonly called, is prepared from beef fat or lard, 
which is worked up with ordinary butter and coloring matter so as to resemble the real article. Besides a certain difference in the taste of butter and margarine, there is one very simple method, known as the spoon test, by which they may be distinguished. If a little genuine butter is melted in a large spoon over a small Bunsen flame, and the heating is continued, the butter ultimately boils quietly and foams up to the edge of the spoon. Margarine, treated in the same way, splutters about and crackles, but does not foam. The practice of selling margarine under the name of pure butter is probably dying out, but it is not so very long since a bold individual was prosecuted for actually advertising a process for the scientific blending of butter with beef fat or lard. Science, it would seem, covers a multitude of sins. A foodstuff which is frequently adulterated is chocolate. This substance is obtained by grinding cocoa nibs, which are the crushed kernels of cocoa beans. The nibs consist to about 45% of a fat, the so-called cocoa butter, and in this respect are quite different from the shells of the cocoa bean, which contain only 2 or 3% of the fat. Seeing that the price of cocoa nibs is about 10 times that of cocoa shells, the common practice of adulterating chocolate with powdered cocoa shells is distinctly profitable. This fraud is best detected by the aid of the microscope, an instrument which is part of the necessary equipment of an analytical chemist's laboratory. To the practiced eye, the presence of the powdered shells is at once obvious. There is another adulterant of chocolate or cocoa which is easily detected with the aid of the microscope, and that is starch. This substance is very widely distributed in the plant world, and occurs in all sorts of vegetables and cereals. The samples of starch obtained from these various sources, such as wheat, rice, potatoes, and maize, are chemically identical, but when they are examined under the microscope, the granules of which they consist are found to be surprisingly different in shape and size. The granules of wheat starch are circular, those of potato starch are oval, while those of rice starch are many-sided. The granules from maize starch, as found for example in corn flour, are also many-sided, but are uniformly much larger than rice starch granules. It is therefore possible for a skilled analyst to determine with the microscope whether any starch, and if so what kind of starch, has been used in adulterating a given foodstuff. He can also discover at once whether a certain kind of starch is pure or is contaminated with another kind. Obviously there is a temptation for the adulterator to add a cheap starch to a more expensive one, say potato starch to arrowroot, keeping the price the same. The microscope, however, soon exposes such a fraud. Substances which in some cases are to be regarded as regular adulterants are those used as preservatives. It is now generally agreed that a dairyman who knows his business does not require to add preservatives such as boric acid and formaldehyde even in the hottest weather. Moreover, the passage of these substances into the digestive organs is not to edification. The amount of formaldehyde which must be added to milk in order to preserve it is exceedingly small. One part in ten thousand of milk will keep the latter sweet for five or six days, but it must be remembered that in the case of children who consume considerable quantities of milk, the total amount of preservative taken into the system becomes appreciable. Similar objection may be taken to the employment of boric or boracic acid. This is used as a preservative of milk less frequently than formaldehyde, and it is generally mixed with borax, its sodium salt. Boric acid, by the way, has an interesting natural origin. Practically all the acid we use for preservative and other purposes comes from Tuscany, where numbers of steam jets of volcanic origin, sofioni as they are called, are to be found issuing from the ground. This steam contains small quantities of boric acid, and when a tank to hold water is built round the blowhole, the boric acid is condensed. 
it gradually accumulates in the water of the tank and is then obtained by evaporation the steam jets themselves being used to promote the process successful results have been obtained also from artificial sofiani started by boring into the lower strata there are other chemicals which are often used as food preservatives such as salt sugar and vinegar these substances are themselves foods to some extent and they are therefore much less objectionable than purely antiseptic preservatives like boric acid and formaldehyde the use of common salt sodium chloride in preserving butter and meat is well known to everyone and it is not regarded as an adulterant a curious effect is produced when the solution in which beef is salted contains some saltpetre nitrate of potash as well as sodium chloride the saltpetre causes the meat to preserve its natural red colour which would be destroyed partially at least by the action of common salt alone eggs are a form of food which is fortunately out of the reach of the adulterator at least he cannot imitate the egg as a whole and his turn comes only when the question of an egg substitute arises in this line he has displayed his usual ingenuity and brought out powders which are said to contain all the ingredients of eggs but which on examination are found to fall very far short of that standard in one case on record it was stated with a great show of authority that the composition of a certain egg substitute was based on the scientific analysis of natural eggs which it should be noted contain a fair proportion of nitrogenous matter when tested the product in question was found to be entirely innocent of nitrogen and consisted of nearly pure tapioca starch with a little common salt and colouring matter added this is another example of the way in which the name of science is taken in vain. End of chapter 23